25 minutes to 11, I started dating a zookeeper, but it turned out he was a cheater. Hayden, you weren't particularly laughing at that one. No, I don't. I, I mean, I get it, but I also don't get it. I get that it's a pun. <laughs> cheater with an H at the end and a cheater with an R at the end. Sure thing, but like a zookeeper doesn't become the animal. That's not part of the job description. I'm not quite, un, I'm just not. But if you were in the audience sitting there and someone said that to you, you'd probably yeah, go was, along with the flow, wouldn't you? I'm you'd just, uh, the, uh, the, uh, actually, it kind of, yeah, You're gets in me mood. into quite a tense <laughs> like mental space thinking about it because it kind of works but doesn't quite. Yes. Well, what, well, it's not working. It was so well, it seems, uh, after what was a, it was a somewhat dire poll for Labour, and that's where you wanted to start with our midweek media watch, this uh, latest poll. Yeah, speaking of not quite working, this is One News presenter Simon Dallow announcing the results of the latest One News variant poll. Breaking news. The latest One News variant poll shows National and ACT firmly in the driving seat, 54 days out from the election. And the poll also reveals that Labour's fallen to its lowest numbers in six years. Leader Chris Hipkins has also plunged in popularity. Nationals Christopher Luxon now breathing down his neck. Sheesh. Well, <laughs> Labour must be, but tell me the bad news, Simon. Yeah. You know, one, one news political editor, uh, Jessica Much Mackay, actually went on from that, uh, adding this uh, about the far sunnier national side of the political equation. National will be able to smell victory with these numbers, and that's a huge motivator with seven and a bit weeks to go. So besides those those party vote results, were there any other interesting numbers that you pulled out of the poll? Yeah, we'll go back to the party vote stuff, but I did want to mention this because Media Watch has a long and relatively antagonistic history when it comes to the preferred Prime Minister question that we get in all of these polls. So as Simon Dallow said... In this poll, Christopher Luxon is biting at Chris Hipkins' heels. What he didn't mention is that uh, the Christopher Luxon is, if he's biting at the heels, he's a very he's a Chihuahua-sized dog biting at those heels and and to be fair the possessor of those heels is chihuahua sized as well because the numbers for both these men are extraordinarily low 21 percent i think for hipkins 20 percent for lux and most uh that, that's not that most people are not even picking one of those two men so both of those numbers are actually dwarfed by the most popular candidate of them all don't know who comes in with an almost unassailable lead, 39%, way higher than either of them. Now, there's a slight divergence in views at MediaWatch HQ on this matter. I still think that's an interesting result and has some sort of worth, while Colin doesn't. He says the dominance of don't know, that just means that people are not interested in this horse race, not interested in this personal head-to-head battle, the Chris versus Chris, as much as the media is, and the media wants to make it like that, and the public's not that interested. And that might be true. There might be quite a few people that are like that. I wonder whether, though... This this result could be saying that people are saying a plague on both your houses, mm-hmm. that no one has much affection for either leader, no one wants either of them to to win, and I think that that's interesting as well. Is that generally about that size, the, the don't know vote? Is it always much bigger? It's than the... always huge, yeah. but I think this is particularly yeah. large because we don't have a figure like Jacinda Ardern that used to command actually quite a big chunk of the electorate. Yeah. So the news, anyway, wasn't great for Labour on One News, but its commentary was relatively measured uh, compared to what we've seen elsewhere. Yeah, One News itself didn't use this term, but other outlets were 
more willing to speculate on whether this is the beginning of a death spiral of sorts for Labour at stuff. You had Tover O'Brien saying the result will have apparatchiks freaking out that the rot has set in. Is that how you say that word? Apparatchiks? Yeah, I don't know. Text us your thoughts. At RNZ, Bryce Edwards (laughs) asked the question, is it all over now for the Labour government? In a piece strongly hinting that the answer is yes, and it ended with a rundown of the election odds being offered by the Australian TAB. That gives new meaning to the term horse race coverage, doesn't it? Literally giving the odds at the end of it. Maybe go place your bets. Apparently they're paying out four to one for a Labour victory. So that's very good. Yeah. Uh, good to good to advertise that here as well. I mean, it's not it's not legal to bet on it in New Zealand. But uh, at the Herald, you had political editor Claire Trevet noting that Labor's support has almost halved since 2020, and that's a statistic she called pretty justifiably uh, gobsmacking and grim for the party's hopes. All in all, you'd have to say the bells were tolling in the media over the apparent death of Labor's election dream. Well, of course, you, you refer to it as a death spiral. Is there an extent to which it almost becomes a like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy? You know, the commentary is about how Labour is going to lose. And then I guess that contributes to them losing. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think so. And this isn't... I know this is hard to believe, but this isn't a media criticism per se, but it strikes me that there's a bit of a circular nature to this type of reporting where you have a dire poll result and that prompts some dire reporting about a, how a party is going to lose and that prompts another dire poll result and it just does this kind of spiral thing where it's hard to tell whether the media is reporting the news or actually it's becoming a part of the news itself. It's causing mm. the news. So this is something that reporters... And pollsters are cognizant of stuff editor Andrea Vance and the National Party pollster David Farah spoke about this recently on an episode of Stuff's Daily Podcast Newsable from a few weeks ago. And they said that poll reporting does feed into future poll results in a way. What is important is the reaction that a poll can cause. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that an entire caucus is going to wet the bed over one poll, but a series of polls, they are going to start getting nervous, right? It becomes, bad poll results become self-perpetuating in a way. David, do, do you think that polls can lead people's votes? Oh, absolutely. Self-fulfilling prophecy is a term. Now, that was the the interviewer in the middle there. Don't want to forget him. That's Emile Donovan uh, asking the questions. And Farah went on to say that there are a number of reasons uh, for why these things get self-perpetuating. People don't like to back losers. Bad poll results deflate a party's volunteer base. It feeds into voters' perceptions of a party and so on and so on. So it sort of makes it very hard for a party to actually arrest that dissent if it does start to go into freefall. Yeah, exactly. It's... Very difficult, and in some ways the media coverage sort of starts to define the election result and they can't actually get out of it no matter what they try to do. Though Labour is making an effort, and that's why we have Chris Hipkins trotting out this kind of line. We've got a lot of work to do. Look, there's no question about this. We go into this campaign as the underdog. We're going to be getting out there working hard. We're going to be sharing a positive vision for New Zealand's future, and we're up against an opposition that want to cut a whole other thing. Now that's the man at the helm of New Zealand's first majority MMP government with 65 MPs at his disposal at his disposal playing the classic Kiwi election battler. So it's all very well to say that news organisations shouldn't 
become the news, but I mean, they've spent a lot of money on these poles, so they've got to get the most out of them, don't they? Yeah, it's kind of, they're incredibly expensive. I think I've heard something like ten to $15,000 or something. So it would be really economically unwise to just play down their results and treat them as if they're insignificant. And mm. I mean, it does make it tempting for news outlets to over-egg their significance at times. Though I'd note this was probably treated a little bit more soberly by TVNZ than it might have been on some other networks where I'm sure the psychological effects of Labour's dip into the dreaded 20s might have been played up a bit more than it was uh, on TVNZ. I don't think there's any easy solution to this either, and I have to say it's a bipartisan thing. It works both ways in the political spectrum. Right now it's Chris Hipkins and Labour's turn, but Simon Bridges and Judith Collins experienced a similar poll-driven narrative lock during their tenures, of course, you'll remember that. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily the media's fault. None of the politicians or parties in question have exactly done themselves too many favours. But it does affect the election playing field. And as a result, it's probably worth taking poll results and uh, poll reporting with a small pinch of salt and just analysing them critically, I guess. Well, speaking of organisations that are a bit down on their luck right now, seems to be more signs of pressure on our major media companies. That's right. On Friday night, newsroom's Mark Jennings, staying late in the office, uh, reported that Warner Brothers Discovery, which owns three in News Hub, had gone cap in hand to Broadcasting Minister Willie Jackson pleading for financial support. And that follows the company uh, company's NZ division losing $35 million in the 2022 financial year. And of course, the market hasn't exactly got a whole bunch better since then, so it's unlikely that it's had much of a turnaround. So what sort of support are we talking about here? Seems to be a bit of a point of conflict on the nature of this support. Now, there's some additional sentences added to the end of Jennings Newsroom story after it was published. And that was, it said that a government press secretary had got in touch to say that Discovery hadn't asked directly for government support. Uh, You know, got in touch, you probably possibly a bit euphemistic, maybe. (laughs) You know, Jennings says that he understands the support asked for was a reduction, though, of this, of the Cordia charges that are levied to broadcasters for access to the broadcast transmission network. So not directly a cash injection, but something that, you know, a discount. Like a discount. But that's on the fees that they're paying hasn't that it goes happened? into the government coffers. It's happened before that, hasn't it? There's been a precedent. Yeah, that. it has happened before. It's, it's, a, it's a tried and true tactic, actually, for three. They managed to wrangle a break on their Cordia fees back uh, in 2009 during the global financial crisis, and that was, of course, from John Key's national government. So is it likely that they'll get that uh, if they ask for assistance? Yeah, well, Jennings notes in the story, the timing really couldn't be worse, could it? I I don't know if you've heard, there's an election around the corner, so the government's mind might be on that rather than uh, Three or Discovery's financial issues. There's also the fact that Three is now owned by one of the richest entertainment companies on earth in Warner Brothers Discovery, and perhaps the government, not exactly uh, flush with cash itself, it might be looking at that company's $31 billion market capitalisation and... Uh, questioning why it should be subsidising it or spotting it a few million dollars in transmission fees. And there's also a few changes afoot. Uh, I see they're uh, rearranging things at NZME. Yeah, it 
staff called into a meeting yesterday. They were told the company is going through a restructure or probably more like a reorganisation with the biggest move being the separation of its digital and print news operations. Some roles being established, some being disestablished. There's a net loss of one job. So not exactly the most brutal restructure in history, but still a significant one. And then we've just been done promising what to integrate our digital and radio news operations here at RNZ. Yeah, it's funny, right? We've we've we just had this uh, controversy, of course, about Russia-friendly edits to yes. RNZ's stories and management at RNZ commissioned a report into that saga, and it was scathing of the fact that RNZ kept its digital news operation separate from its radio news operation. It said the lack of interaction and integration between the teams meant that the staff member in question wasn't subject to some of the editorial checks that radio journalists have to go through. Now. You have this really big major media company looking to basically do exactly what we were scathingly told off for, separating out its digital and its uh, standard or print media and print news. Ah, so, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It seems a bit funny in that sense. Maybe it will be arranged a bit differently to how RNZ was, though. And is that the extent of the changes, or is there more? I think there's also some restructuring going on in the company's entertainment and lifestyle divisions. There were some fears as well for the regional news operations, mm-hmm. some concern that it might affect the editors at regional papers, but what I've been told is that the jobs at those regional papers, like the Whanganui Chronicle, they're safe. But obviously, preparing for potentially harder economic times. I guess that's the subtext of a lot of this stuff. Maybe the tide is going out on the good times of the last few years where the economy was growing, media companies' bottom lines were being shored up by various sorts of government support, including, of course, uh, the Public Interest Journalism Fund and the wage subsidy, which it should be noted, NZME took something like nearly $9 million from the wage subsidy, cut staff, and then declared eye-watering Profit, so they did pretty well out of that. Now, mm. stuff has gone through its own restructures as well. It reorganised its leadership team. It lost a bunch of high-profile journalists, including Ellie Moore, Kirsty Johnston, Eloise Gibson, Kate Newton, and others to uh, redundancy or resignation. It does seem that these companies are aware that there's a recession on, and that uh, advertising market is drying up a bit, and they're trying to streamline things. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. There are signs of further unrest in the media industry of course but the but the expensive sandwich industry's also been in the headlines um and going through somewhat of an upheaval lately as well the wishbone yeah huge drama over wishbone this began uh, with a tweet or what's now called a post on x formerly twitter gosh elon musk eh? uh by the former diplomat and lobbyist charles finney And he posted a picture of the closed wishbone on the ground floor of the Treasury building on the terrace in Wellington last week, along with the words, the state of the New Zealand economy today, cafe and ground floor of Treasury building shut, chain in the hands of the receivers. The implication, of course, being that wishbone is kind of the canary in the coal mine of our wider economy. And he wasn't alone in that assessment at all. You had National's finance spokesperson, Deputy Leader Nicola Willis, also posting on X, saying the closure is a sign of the fragility of the economy and the human impact it's having. 
uh, the Post and Sunday Star Times editor Tracy Watkins, she chimed in echoing those sentiments, though I have to say on a much more local scale. She had an editorial on the weekend saying that Wishbone's demise was a sign that Wellington has a hole in its heart and it's an augur of the demise of the Golden Mile, which she said uh, had lost hundreds of car parks and that was part of the reason she said was it was going downhill. Now this was accompanied by a front page story in the hmm. Post uh, with the relatively funny headline, Wishbone, did we just fall out of love with expensive sandwiches? Which kind of, to me, begs the question, when did we fall in love with expensive sandwiches? <laughs> Who wants an expensive sandwich? Isn't that part of the thing with expensive, it's overpriced? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> the overarching idea, I think, in all of this is that as wishbone goes, uh, so goes the economy. So did you have some issues with that uh, measure of the economy? As I, I don't think that that is necessarily a foolproof uh economic measure and I'd hesitate to use the closure of one chain which several people have argued was relatively overpriced and underwhelming as a measure of the country's overall economic performance particularly given it closed in one of the most competitive cafe markets in the country. I mean could it be that people simply have better options? Mm. Besides that though it seems some of these correspondents are just wrong on the facts. Now Watkins, she says, and I hate to defend Wellington, but she says the Golden Mile is dying, citing those hundreds of missing parking spots. But if you look at Google Maps, even for a little bit, you can see there's dozens of business open, businesses open, and possibly even thriving within a 50 metre radius of the closed sandwich shop in question. You've got two outlets of the Cafe Mojo. Of course, you can't throw a stone in Wellington without hitting a mojo. Uh, you've got two brand new cafes, one fancy bar called Huxley's, a new eatery called Saloon, and they're all uh, shacked up in a brand new building housing civil servants just across the road from that wishbone uh, building. So actually, it looks like the terrace is going, is actually kind of uh, on the way up. So that's your anecdotal evidence um, on on the resilience of the cafe scene in Wellington. But uh, are there actual stats yeah. to back you up? Yeah, well, Watkins says there's not. She says we won't know the extent of the Golden Mile's agonies until we get some stats from the upcoming census results. But you want numbers, Mark? I'll give you numbers. There's some numbers available. Collier's put the office rental vacancy rate for Wellington City Centre at 5.4% at the end of the 2022 year. That was the lowest rate for New Zealand or Australia. So hole in the heart. I mean, maybe not. It sounds like actually if they've got a hole in the heart, everyone else is a gaping a crevasse, chasm, chasm. <laughs> uh, uh, for so-called prime sites, uh, that figure was just 1.3%. So that would be a lot of the ones on the Golden Mile. The The most recent stats actually show uh, the rental vacancy rate at 4.3% on Lambton Key. Now that was taken just after the first COVID lockdown, but I'm reliably informed that there are still very few for rent signs around on Lambton Key today. And meanwhile, you can look at some other stats, public transport, which mostly goes to the city centre in Wellington, is at pre-COVID levels. Now, I, I, the overall economy, obviously, not going great guns compared to how it was, but I'd wager that wishbone success or otherwise isn't the most appropriate bellwether for uh, New Zealand or even just the Golden Mile success. 
Okay, so that's uh, a bit of doubt cast upon media coverage of Wishbone's woes. And another media organisation is also in the gun for some of its coverage, and that is TVNZ. Yeah, this is TVNZ Breakfast presenter Anna Burns Francis delivering an on-air apology for what she said was getting things wrong yesterday. Here at breakfast we like to get things right, so here goes. Yesterday, ACT Deputy Leader Brooke Van Velden appeared on our political panel and among other things we discussed comments made by ACT Leader David Seymour about the Ministry of Pacific Peoples. Last week he said, In my fantasy we'd send a guy called Guy Fawkes in there and it'll all be over, but we'll probably have to have a more formal approach than that. He later said the comments were a joke and when I paraphrased his words yesterday I didn't get them right. Now, it's hard to get a sense of it completely from the audio, but I have to say that apology, if you look at the video, had about all the warmth and authenticity of a hostage video. And from what I understand, that's because it may have been compelled. What do you mean? Well, I have some sources that have told me, including at TVNZ, that that ACT got in touch with the station to complain after Burns Francis interviewed its deputy leader, Brooke Van Velden, and in that interview, this is actually how Anna Burns Francis characterised David Seymour's statement about uh, the Ministry of Pacific Peoples. Do have any concrete actual wasteful spending of an exact example other than the two that you've already given for a ministry that your leader has said he would blow up? Now, th- I'm thinking that that's the characterisation in question. Mm. And uh, I mean, it's a little bit off because. Uh, she's kind of attributing the blowing up to Seymour himself. That's a bit personal. He didn't he say would, that. He was talking about Guy Fawkes or whatever. It's a bit of a joke yeah. and a metaphor. I wouldn't say it's a particularly radical mischaracterization or departure from what was said. It wasn't uh, it wasn't the worst paraphrase I've ever heard. I mean, uh, nevertheless, from what I understand from sources inside TVNZ, X call was made to an editorial leader at the station afterwards, and obviously it felt Burns Francis' characterisation of Seymour's statements was off enough that an apology was warranted and stuff, and the Herald subsequently wrote stories about that apology. Which seems a bit like a tough response to a, a relatively... Well, minor infraction, really. Yeah, I would have thought so. I don't know why this warranted getting so up in arms. So maybe there's context there. But I would have thought that our Libertarian Party, with its commitment to freedom of speech, might have let this one slide. But alas, apparently not. Now we've got a couple of minutes to go. Um, just a couple of quick media points, uh, updates. You interviewed Jared Gilbert and Jonathan Milne about crime and justice, uh, reporting a couple of weeks ago. Jared Gilbert has added a little bit of information on that topic in his Herald column. Yeah, a bit of a mea culpa by me, a slip up. Now our interview was about a report that was commissioned by Gilbert through his role at what's called the Safe and Effective Justice Advisory Group, or to. And it was written by uh, Milne and the Herald journalist David Fisher. But I noted in the interview that uh, it was never released. And I didn't explain why that was. And that was partly because I'd asked Milne why it wasn't released. And he kind of didn't know. But I didn't ask Jared Gilbert. And apparently he did know. So the reason why it wasn't released, he says uh, in a column for the Herald over the weekend, I think, it may have been political interference from comm staff at our justice agencies that was responsible. So he said that maybe those justice staff didn't think that the media would welcome uh, this report or an accompanying website with guidelines on uh, how to cover crime and justice. Now, that's probably not the case given, well, from the media leaders that 
others have talked to, but nevertheless, uh, the key line from Jared Gilbert's piece now is asking the question, did this project die a natural death or was it murdered? Who knows? All I know for certain is this, the problems of crime reporting in New Zealand remain. And finally, just uh, got a minute on the NBR, which has uh, gotten rid of all of its opinion columnists. Yeah, it, it, it gained a bunch of opinion columnists not that long ago. To some fanfare, Duncan Garner, Martin Devlin, Bridget Morden and others. Now they've dumped them all. Uh, editor or publisher, sorry, Todd Scott says, uh, this is because its subscribers, its premium subscribers, said to them that they want uh, the NBR to be focused on business news and analysis. And they've <laughs> taken that to heart, obviously.